Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Baked and Awake Show. Today is October 29th, 2018, and we're going to come back at you today with our Halloween special number two, because it's a Halloween so nice, we're having it twice before the day has even happened. Before we jump into our show today, however, I'd like to provide my usual disclaimer for new listeners who may just be arriving. First off, I want to say thank you to everyone who made it here, especially you new folks. I also like to let you know at the top of the show that if you didn't know already, Baked and Awake is a show primarily about weed. There will be cannabis consumed and discussed regularly here. Please keep this in mind when listening at work, in public spaces, or at church. What's that? Well, I don't know why you'd be listening in church either. I'm just saying maybe it's not the best idea, even if Mass doesn't start for a little while and you're bored. Why are you there early anyway? Isn't church at the same time every week? Get your shit together, people. Anyway, as you might have guessed, since we're doing two Halloween episodes in a row, the season, you know, it's sort of settled upon me. Not unlike the haunting of an old, recently abandoned property on the edge of town. It's almost impossible to resist. And at a certain point, rather than struggle against it, one does well to simply lean into it and go with the flow. In keeping with the spooky vibe that seeped into us during last week's episode, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, faithful listeners will recall that I actually narrated the mortifying misadventures of an old and otherworldly seaman who, having reaped the grisly consequences of his damnable act, the murder most foul of an innocent albatross, the mascot of his mates no less. Consequences for the mariner in the form of the swift demise of the entire crew of the ship upon which he served, only to suffer the eternal agony of retelling the story of his own final benighted boondoggle to reluctant audiences forevermore. For those of you who missed it, and are for some crazy reason just arriving now, I say to you, go back. Go back and listen to that story first, so you can get yourself in the mood for more epic classic horror. This time, brought to you by an even more well-known and dearly loved Samuel than our erstwhile Coleridge. Indeed, our story today was written by none other than Samuel Longthorn Clemens, popularly known around the world by his nom de plume, Mark Twain. As Mr. Twain is one of the most prolific and widely read authors of his time, enjoying the 
sort of recognition and general acclaim in society that we often see today in the public's adoration of television and movie stars of the A-list variety. Falling somewhere between a Garrison Keillor and Stephen King in terms of style, Twain's most famous works, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, separate book, are treasured and read to this day. Despite what may be, through the fraught lenses of today's readers, at times shocking portrayals of both black Americans themselves and the white characters in Twain's novels, only sometimes shown in a reflective light themselves. Personally, my memories of reading these classics has dimmed considerably over the years. All I remember from them is an odd feeling of unease now and then at the harsh words directed at or dismissive treatment invinced towards Twain's black characters, like the iconic runaway slave, Jim. Though he was on the run for his life, and a criminal in the eyes of many who must have first read the story of Huckleberry Finn, I do remember Jim being strongly humanized, probably in a way that had seldom, if ever, been attempted before in Western literature. For that, I was profoundly grateful. Even as a young boy who had never really at that point seriously pondered racism, or where or how I might encounter it throughout my life. I say these things not by way of apology for Mark Twain, for as I did hasten to observe just there, I believe history remembers him as an ally of the oppressed and downtrodden. Children, runaway slaves, and all. Today's tale, however, is not one of youthful adventures and the snubbing of authority in the midst of a recently war-torn America. Rather, it is one that will, in turn, provide suspense. At first, a small dose of unease that slowly builds into a profound discomfort for the reader, and abject terror for the protagonist, finally giving way to a bit of levity before allowing us to continue on our way. Oh, I almost forgot. I'll be reading this story, whilst attempting to smoke to its conclusion, a hefty and heavily infused cross-joint, which if you've never seen one, please allow me to direct you to my Instagram account, at baked underscore and underscore awake, where you can see this creation in all its glory. Though wholly in its form, I fully expect, and indeed hope, to be personally possessed by something by the conclusion of this little experiment. Wish me Godspeed upon this, my latest and greatest boondoggle. And now that you have the full picture of what's happening here behind the mic, let us then to Mark Twain's A Ghost Story.
All right, it's lit, fam. We'll see if we can't keep all three of these tips lit. Better snap a quick pick of it for the gram. Before we get after it too hard. Okay, doesn't taste half bad either. This story was found at steve-calvert.co.uk under his classic horror stories list. All the stories on this list are public domain. And we are about to read a ghost story by Mark Twain. I took a large room far up Broadway, in a huge old building whose upper stories had been wholly unoccupied for years until I came. The place had long been given up to dust and cobwebs, to solitude and silence. I seemed groping among the tombs and invading the privacy of the dead that first night I climbed up to my quarters. For the first time in my life as a superstitious dread came over me. And as I turned a dark angle of the stairway, and an invisible cobweb swung its lazy woof in my face and clung there, I shuddered as one who had encountered a phantom. I was glad enough when I reached my room and locked out the mold and the darkness. A cheery fire was burning in the grate, and I sat down before it with a comforting sense of relief. For two hours I sat there, thinking of bygone times, recalling old scenes and summoning half-forgotten faces out of the mists of the past, listening in fancy the voices that long ago grew silent for all time, and to once familiar songs that nobody sings now. And as my reverie softened down to a sadder and sadder pathos, the shrieking of the winds outside softened to a wail. The angry beating of the rain against the panes diminished to a crank, tranquil patter, and one by one the noises in the streets subsided until the hurrying footsteps of the last belated straggler died away in the distance and left no sound behind. The fire had burned low. The sense of loneliness crept over me. I arose and undressed, moving on tiptoe about the room, doing stealthily what I had to do as if I were environed by sleeping enemies whose slumbers it would be fatal to break. I covered up in bed and lay listening to the rain and wind and the faint creaking of distant shutters till they lulled me to sleep.
I slept profoundly, but how long I do not know. All at once, I found myself awake and filled with a shuddering expectancy. All was still, all but my own heart. I could hear it beat. Presently, the bedclothes began to slip away slowly toward the foot of the bed, as if someone were pulling them. I could not stir. I could not speak. Still, the blanket slipped deliberately away till my breast was uncovered. Then, with a great effort, I seized them and drew them over my head. I waited, listened, waited. Once more that steady pull began, and once more I lay torpid, a century of dragging seconds till my breast was naked again. last. I roused my energies and snatched the covers back up to their place and held them with a strong grip. I waited. By and by I felt a faint tug and took a fresh grip. The tug strengthened to a steady strain, grew stronger and stronger. My hold parted and for the third time the blanket slid away. I groaned. An answering groan came from the foot of the bed. Beaded drops of sweat stood upon my forehead. I was more dead than alive. Presently, I heard a heavy footstep in my room. The step of an elephant, it seemed to me. It was not like anything human but it was moving from me. There was a relief in that. I heard it approach the door, pass out without moving bolt or lock, and wander away among the dismal corridors, straining the floors and joists until they creaked again as it passed. And then silence reigned one more. When my excitement had calmed, I said to myself, This is a dream, simply a hideous dream. And so I lay, thinking it over until I convinced myself that it was a dream. Then a comforting laugh relaxed my lips, and I was happy again. I got up and struck a light. And when I found that the locks and bolts were just as I had left them, another soothing laugh welled up in my heart and rippled from my lips. I took my pipe and lit it, and was just sitting down before the fire when down went the pipe out of my nerveless fingers. The blood forsook my cheeks, and my placid breathing was cut short with a gasp. 
and the ashes on the hearth, side by side with my own bare footprint, was another, so vast that in comparison mine was but an infant's. Then I had had a visitor, and the elephant tread was explained. I put out the light and returned to bed, palsied with fear. I lay a long time, peering into the darkness and listening. Then I heard a grating noise overhead, like the dragging of a heavy body across the floor. Then the throwing down of the body and the shaking of my windows in response to the concussion. In distant parts of the building, I heard the muffled slamming of doors. I heard, at intervals, stealthy footsteps creeping in and out among the corridors and up and down the stairs. Sometimes these noises approached my door, hesitated, and went away again. I heard the clanking of chains faintly in remote passages, and listened while the clanking grew nearer, while it wearily climbed the stairways, marking each move by the loose surplus of chain that fell with accented rattle upon each succeeding step as the goblin that bore it advanced. Muttered sentences. Half-uttered screams that seemed smothered violently. And the swish of invisible garments. The rush of invisible wings. Then I became conscious that my chamber was invaded. That I was not alone. I heard sighs and breathings about my bed. And mysterious whisperings. Three little spheres of soft, phosphorescent light appeared on the ceiling. Directly over my head clung, glowed there a moment, and then dropped. Two of them upon my face and one upon the pillow. They spattered liquidly and felt warm. Intuition told me they had turned to gouts of blood as they fell. I needed no light to satisfy myself of that. Then I saw pallid faces dimly luminous, and white, uplifted hands, floating bodiless in the air, floating a moment and then disappearing. The whispering ceased, and the voices and the sounds, and a solemn stillness followed. I waited and listened. I felt that I must have light or die. I was weak with fear. 
I slowly raised myself toward a sitting posture. And my face came in contact with a clammy hand. All strength went from me, apparently, and I fell back like a stricken invalid. Then I heard the rustle of a garment. It seemed to pass to the door and go out. When everything was still once more, I crept out of bed, sick and feeble, and lit the gas with a hand that trembled, as if it were aged with a hundred years. The light brought some little cheer to my spirits. I sat down and fell into a dreamy contemplation of that great footprint in the ashes. By and by, its outlines began to waver and grow dim. I glanced up, and the broad gas flame was slowly wilting away. In the same moment, I heard that elephantine tread again. I noted its approach. Nearer and nearer. Along the musty halls. And dimmer and dimmer, the light waned. The tread reached my very door and paused. The light had dwindled to a sickly blue. And all things about me lay in a spectral twilight. The door did not open, and yet I felt a faint gust of air fan my cheek, and presently was conscious of a huge, cloudy presence before me. I watched it with fascinated eyes. A pale glow stole over the thing. Gradually, its cloudy folds took shape. An arm appeared, then legs, then a body, and last, a great, sad face looked out of the vapor. Stripped of its flimsy housings, naked, muscular, and comely, the majestic Cardiff giant loomed above me. All my misery vanished. For a child might know that no harm could come with that benignant countenance. My cheerful spirits returned at once, and in sympathy with them the gas flamed up brightly again. Never a lonely outcast was so glad to welcome company as I was to greet the friendly giant. I said, Why, is it nobody but you? Do you know I have been scared to death for the last two or three hours? I am most honestly glad to see you. I wish I had a chair. Here, here, don't try to sit down. But it was too late. He was in it before I could stop him and down he went, 
I never saw a chair shivered so in my life. Stop, stop, you'll ruin it. Too late again. There was another crash. The chair was resolved into its original elements. Confound it, haven't you got any judgment at all? Do you want to rule all the furniture in this place? Here, here, you petrified fool. But it was no use. Before I could arrest him, he had sat down on the bed. And it was a melancholy ruin. Now, what sort of a way is that to do? First, you come lumbering about the place, bringing a legion of vagabond goblins along with you to worry me to death. And then, when I overlook an indelicacy of costume which would not be tolerated anywhere by cultivated people except in a respectable theater, and not even there if the nudity were of your sex, you repay me by wrecking all the furniture you can find to sit down on. And why will you? You damage yourself as much as you do me. You've broken off the end of your spinal column and littered up the floor with chips of your hams till this place looks like a marble yard. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You are big enough to know better. Well, I will not break any more furniture. But what am I to do? I have not had a chance to sit down for a century. And the tears came into his eyes. Poor devil, I said. I should not have been so harsh with you. And you are an orphan too, no doubt. But sit down on the floor here. Nothing else can stand your weight. And besides, we cannot be sociable with you away up there above me. I want you down here where I can perch on this high counting house stool and gossip with you face to face. So, he sat down on the floor and lit a pipe which I gave him, threw one of my red blankets over his shoulders, inverted my sits bath on his head, helmet fashion, and made himself picturesque and comfortable. Then he crossed his ankles while I renewed the fire and exposed the flat, honeycombed bottoms of his prodigious feet to the grateful warmth. What is the matter with the bottom of your feet and back of your legs, that they are gouged up so? Infernal chillblains. I caught them clear up to the back of my head, roosting out there under Newell's farm. But I love the place. I love it as one loves his old home. There's no peace for me like the peace I feel when I am there. Podcaster's note. Chilblains are a old name for a mistaken frostbite-like condition. Also known as pernio, chillburns and perniosis is a medical condition that occurs when a predisposed individual is exposed to cold and humidity, causing tissue damage. It is often confused with frostbite and trench foot. Damage to capillary beds in the skin causes redness, itching, 
inflammation, and sometimes blisters. We talked along for half an hour, and then I noticed that he looked tired and spoke of it. Tired, he said. Well, I should think so. And now I will tell you all about it, since you have treated me so well. I am the spirit of the petrified man that lies across the street there in the museum. I am the ghost of the Cardiff giant. I can have no rest, no peace, till they have given that poor body burial again. Now, what was the most natural thing for me to do to make men satisfy this wish? Terrify them into it. Haunt the place where the body lay. So, I haunted the museum night after night. I even got other spirits to help me. But it did no good, for nobody ever came to the museum at midnight. Then, it occurred to me to come over the way and haunt this place a little. I felt that if I ever got a hearing, I must succeed, for I had the most efficient company that perdition could furnish. Night after night, we have shivered around through these mildewed halls, dragging chains, groaning, whispering, tramping up and down stairs till, to tell you the truth, I am almost worn out. But when I saw a light in your room tonight, I roused my energies again and went out it with a deal of the old freshness. But I am tired out, entirely fagged out. Give me, I beseech you, Give me some hope. I lit off my perch in a burst of excitement and exclaimed, This transcends everything. Everything that ever did occur. Why, you poor blundering old fossil. You've had all your trouble for nothing. You have been haunting a plaster cast of yourself. The real Cardiff giant is in Albany. Footnote by Twain A fact. The original fraud was ingeniously and fraudfully duplicated and exhibited in New York as, quote, the only genuine Cardiff giant to the unspeakable disgust of the owners of the real Colossus at the very same time that the latter was drawing crowds at a museum in Albany. Confound it, don't you know your own remains? I never saw such an eloquent look of shame. A pitiable humiliation overspread a countenance before. 
petrified man rose slowly to his feet and said, Honestly, is that true? As true as I'm sitting here. He took the pipe from his mouth and laid it on the mantel. Then stood irresolute a moment, unconsciously, from old habit, thrusting his hands where his pantaloons' pockets should have been, and meditatively dropping his chin on his breast, and finally said, Well, I never felt so absurd before. The petrified man has sold everybody else, and now the mean fraud has ended by selling its own ghost. My son, if there is any charity left in your heart for a poor, friendless phantom like me, don't let this get out. Think how you would feel if you had made such an ass of yourself. I heard his stately tramp die away. Step by step down the stairs and out into the deserted street. I felt sorry that he was gone, poor fellow. And sorrier still that he had carried off my red blanket and my bathtub. Mark Twain 1835-1910 A ghost story by Mark Twain can be found in his short story collection, Sketches New and Old. We'll post a link in the show notes to our resource for this story today, stevecalvert.co.uk. I really enjoyed reading this story, and uh, at first I was getting ready to move away from it like I had another clever uh, and, and really humorous but not super scary older story that I also read uh, earlier today preparing for this episode. And I went ahead and stuck with it not only because it was Mark Twain, um, not only because it was a ghost story, uh, but because it was even... In a funny way, like more applicable to today than a lot of the other older stories that I've been perusing in the course of this Halloween season, you know, readings. And so what I mean by that is, other than the twist at the end, which actually that's, that is at the end of the day in keeping with a lot of things as well here... Um, that are modern. I'm drawing analogies in my head to modern movies and everything that he has on this page and we're not thinking necessarily that Twain invented a genre here at all. He was uh, walking well-trodden paths of uh, horror literature that came before him probably in the form of like you know Shelley and Stoker and many others uh, before him. Lovecraft, etc. You know, I think Twain, 1835 to 1910, 
might have been a contemporary to one or two of those, but a, a number of others would have come well before him. But the characterizations of the ghouls and ghosts, the sound effects, sounded to me a lot like a sleep paralysis episode. All are really, you know, themes that we still see today played out in everything from creepypastas to jump scare video games to Hollywood movies. And I think it's fun, in a sense, to look back at a story as old as this and see that the richness of the storytelling is, you know, it's there, obviously. In the case of a writer like Twain, he still reads pretty modern compared to a lot of authors from his own era because he's so American. And I think he foreshadowed a lot of writers to come in style. I just enjoyed it. And I and, and then, of course, of course, to have his ghost turn out to be none other than the famous Cardiff Giant. So, on the Cardiff Giant, I wanted to give... Anybody who isn't familiar with this, admittedly, at this point, older 20th century hoax, some background on it, because not unlike Mark Twain's general writing style, I believe his intentional choice of such a topical, to his time, famous hoax such as this, Again, foreshadows so much of modern media today. And the sort of thing that the public might be fascinated with at any given time. I guess I'm saying that this both makes me think of, you know, cliches like there's nothing new under the sun. And it makes me think of modern, overused, and in a sense dystopian phrases like fake news. It was hard to parse reality in Mark Twain's time, even as an educated person, or a seemingly educated person, a person who thinks of yourself as well-rounded, worldly, not gullible, uh, can easily be taken in. In fact, droves of people can be taken in. In the case of the Cardiff Giant, that was certainly the case. Did a little digging on him. I've watched a couple of YouTube documentaries here and there. He's an easy search. But I found a great story at a resource called hoaxes.org. And uh, this is in their archives. 
uh, I want to relate with to you a story from Popular Science, in uh, originally published in July of 1959, uh, housed here at thisresourcehoaxes.org. And um, oh, by the way, cross joint update. This is the following morning, Tuesday morning, the thirtieth. I didn't quite finish the cross joint last night. It was pretty stony. It was. I didn't go to the astral plane. Of course, as enhanced and infused as it was, I didn't go as nutty as I could have on that, so I, I didn't expect to to actually um, leave this world, and, and I didn't, but uh, I was good and, and solidly stony. Enjoyed it. Uh, let the last half kind of uh, burn out as we were finishing talking uh, and finishing the story yesterday. Family showed up and came home. I had to take a break and go take care of them. So I'm operating right now on the second half of that cross joint and have been for a few minutes uh, as I've been working on my production of this episode and laying in some sounds behind the story narration. And while we read this little informational, I believe it was a comic, because it's accompanied by illustrations, link in the show notes, everybody, so you can see all the same stuff I'm looking at and reading to you. From Popular Science, we're going to smoke a new Randy's king-sized rolled-up joint of uh, my own flower, mostly my own flower and some flower from the garden at work. And fuck if I know what strains are in this tray at this point. There's probably like four of them in here, so uh, which is fine. <clears throat> let's let's spark that though. We're gonna have to finish this, and then oh, and this joint's also infused, by the way, everybody. Put a little dollop of uh, some Two Heads Cannabis Skittles down the barrel of this baby. And I'm loving it. This stuff's delicious. I, I think it's uh, probably the same stuff that you can get from them in a vape cartridge, but I got it in a, um, you know, dabber syringe. Doser worked perfect. It's, it's beautiful. The Giant That Fooled the World The Incredible Tale of History's Weirdest Hoax When George Hall left his weed-choked, debt-ridden tobacco farm outside Binghamton, New York, and headed west in 1868 to seek better fortune, he thought maybe he'd go prospecting for gold. But he never reached gold country. On the way, Ninety years ago, he stumbled on something more precious than the yellow metal. Human gullibility. So forgive me, this is a 19th century hoax, really. The Cardiff Giant. The result was one of the most successful scientific hoaxes in history. On a total investment that probably didn't top $4,000, Hull netted a profit estimated at 30000 to 60000 A small fortune in those days. Hull's hoax was the famous Cardiff Giant, a 12-foot statue of a man, secretly made, secretly buried, and then, quote, discovered. Hull had a fabulous double-barreled lie to go with it. It was either a petrified man or an ancient statue. 
Take your choice. Not only the general public, but many learned men paid to see it and swallowed it whole. The idea. Wandering west to seek his fortune, George Hall stopped at Ackley, Iowa to visit his sister. One night, a clergyman dropped in, talked about giants who once strode the earth. Hull argued there were no such giants, then fell silent. The big idea had hit him. People would believe anything, he thought. Raw material. Hull had heard of petrified trees. Why not a petrified man? A giant, aged to stone in his tomb. Near an Iowa Railroad construction site, he found beds of gypsum, a soft, limey rock. Paid a grading crew one keg of beer to quarry out a mammoth, 12 foot by 4 foot by 2 foot block. The block weighed some three tons. Hull had it wrapped in canvas and hoisted onto a dray. It took three weeks to move it 40 miles to the nearest railhead. Two wagons and a bridge broke under the weight. Hull cut off a ton and told bystanders the stone was for a monument. So they probably lost a little bit of dimension there off of what the original goal was for the size of the giant there, just to make it easier to move. Sculpture. Hull confided his scheme to Chicago stonecutter Edward Burkhart had the block hauled into an empty barn Burkhart owned. With two assistants, Burkhart began hacking the gypsum into the figure of a 12-foot-tall man who had died in agony. The face was a likeness of Hull's. So maybe they kept the length, maybe they, maybe that ton that they cut off was in, uh, you know, like a layer off the top, like they cheese sliced it off the top. I wonder how they accomplished that. Once it was already out of the quarry, I guess you bring the tools to a stone that big, huh? Finishing touches. To simulate pores in the giant's skin, Hull made special hammers by setting needles in lead bases. To make him look antique, the stonecutters rubbed him with sand, water, ink, and sulfuric acid. By unexpected luck, vein-like lines appeared in the gypsum. Setting the bait. In Cardiff, New York, a relative of Hull's, William Newell, had a farm. For a fourth interest, he agreed to have the giant buried there. In November 1868, Hull, Newell, and two friends lowered the 2,990-pound colossus into his tomb and carefully filled it over. Hull waited a year until all talk of his mysterious wagon cargo was forgotten. Then in October 1869, Newell hired two neighbors to help him dig a well, pointing out just where they should start. The point of a shovel hit something, and the hoax was on. Here's a little good part. Hull's one worry 
was that scientists would spot the hoax. But to his delight, they were awestruck. They came from universities and museums far and wide. They didn't go for the petrified man line, but called the giant an ancient statue. Hull told Newell to bill it as such to the public. I feel like this hasn't even stopped to this day, this kind of stuff. Um, in the money, huge crowds came to see the giant. Newell fenced off the area, hired a barker, that's carnival barker, charged 50 cents admission. Hull refused one $10,000 offer for his, quote, find, finally sold a part interest to a Syracuse businessman for $30,000, the giant was exhibited in Boston and elsewhere. Trouble begins. I mean, this was a big deal, you guys. <laughs> Showman Phineas T. Barnum offered a huge sum, reportedly over $50,000 for a share. Not to take it away from the guy, but just wanted in on the action. Newell turned him down. Barnum then held his own or had his own giant made of paper mache exhibited it in New York, and offered a $1,000 reward to anyone who proved his less genuine than Hull's. The jig is up. So that kind of blew up Hull's spot here. Stirred by Barnum's spoof, scholars examined the giant more closely in early 1870. Professor O.C. Marsh of Yale finally, noticed crevices ink and surface acid hadn't reached fresh tool marks down near worn surfaces. The Iowa rail crew remembered quarrying the gypsum block for Hull. The end. Hull finally sold his giant to a carnival. He was a rich man. But by 1873, he was flat broke again a result of bad investments. He tried to repeat his great hoax with another giant discovered in Colorado. But this second hoax never got off the ground. Go figure. Hull went to England and oblivion. So, that for you, I humbly present, dear listeners, is the ghost story by Mark Twain, and a little background on the star of his story, the famous Cardiff Giant. Halloween is tomorrow here and uh, at the time of recording the northwest is definitely looking and feeling like fall all our plants are down for the season and we've just got one lake of fire mother plant hanging out inside chilling out for the winter with us uh, which is as it should be and wonderful 
out in the backyard greenhouse. I'm happy to report, actually, I'm not done growing. I've got a Meyer lemon that is that I've been pollinating manually with the little tip of a zip tie going from flower to flower, just twiddling the flowers uh, kind of stupidly, not really knowing which ones are which and which are stamens and which are pistils, etc. Just kind of twiddling flowers. And it's working because I've got a bunch of lemons forming on that plant and in that same pot and in a couple other pots in there, for whatever reason, I've got oddball volunteer tomatoes trying to go. I don't think they'll really do that super well. We'll see how they make it through the winter um, and how much I want to keep heat and supplementary light going out there for all of them. But it's been a lot of fun using the greenhouse all season. Can't wait, though, for the holiday tomorrow. Uh, the boys are excited to wear their costumes and do their Halloween rounds. And then, of course, uh, work the door for a bit for the neighbors. And uh, I hope whatever you guys are up to and planning, hope, hope, hopefully by now everybody already had a great weekend this past weekend, getting ready for the holiday and, uh, you know, coming into it, uh, which is usually the, the way you rock. Uh, we had a great time at a family party. My young cousin PJ put on an awesome uh, Halloween party and uh, was prepared for the rain and had a great spread on and everybody just had an awesome time. So uh, thank you for putting that together buddy and I'm glad we made it out the boys made it uh, with us and uh, we had a wonderful time I took no pictures because I was having too much fun hanging out with my family so uh, you guys should do the same stay safe on Halloween night stay dry if you can take those kids trick-or-treating help them out bring some extra bags be ready to carry that load I say stay safe suggest you get safe too before you <laughs> head out and walk the neighborhood with those little ruffians and uh watch out for tricks get your treats and smoke indica do shit anyway music for today's episode was provided by a combination of public domain music found at the free music archive and other online sources and royalty-free music from our friend and frequent contributor, Auntie Luode. Baked and Awake is a member of the Damaged Goods Network, and you can find our show at damagedgoodsinc.com. Find Steve and email me at talktous at bakedandawake.com.